Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Welcome back to Jubes and Co. with me, Michelle Jubery. We're everywhere. We're on your TV, we're on YouTube, digital radio, social media. Uh, we'll be keeping you company until 7 o'clock, along with my panel. We've got Andre Walker, who's a political commentator. Dr. Lee Jones, who's a professor of political economy and international relations. And Jeevan Sander, who's the economist at King's College London. And you know the drill on the show as well by now. It's not just about us here and our thoughts. It's about you at home as well and yours. You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Uh, don't forget, of course, uh, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. Watch us live. You might be already if you are. Hello. Um, or you can catch us anywhere. We're all over social media. Um, now, I say you can get in touch with me, and you can indeed. Ian, uh, who says he's a shopkeeper, he's emailed me straight away. He says, um, Michelle, you asked the question about banning cigarettes uh, sales to the under 25 year olds he says that would be basically a death uh, for independent convenience stores he says a nation of shopkeepers would become a nation of big business supermarkets there says Ian uh, who says he is a shopkeeper Ian I'm fascinated though really is the bulk of your trade to under 25 year olds selling cigarettes Andre is nodding furiously <laughs> to the right of me um, I'm fascinated by that I thought you'd be selling more well, I don't know, I've got to be honest, I've never actually Chocolates even thought about it. Um, but there you go, fascinating from Ian. Chocolates to kids, says Andre. Uh, anyway, let's hit our main uh, top story, shall we? A website for Britons interested in housing and sponsoring Ukrainians fleeing the Russian uh, invasion has gone live today. Leveling up, Secretary Michael Gove made the announcement in the House of Commons this afternoon. The scheme will allow Ukrainians with no family ties to the UK to be sponsored by individuals or organisations who can offer them a home. There will be no limit to the number of Ukrainians who can benefit from this scheme. The scheme will be open to all Ukrainian nationals and residents. They will be able to live and work in the United Kingdom for up to three years. They will have full and unrestricted access to benefits, healthcare, employment and other support. Well, our reporter, Paul Hawkins, uh, is on the border, Ukraine-Poland border. Paul, good evening to you. Morning, Michelle. That evening, Morning. Michelle. I don't know what time it is. Oh, <laughs> all these days are blaring into one. I hear you, Paul. What's the latest from where you are? Yeah, so uh, you join us at Chemege, uh, which is uh, about we're about a kilometre from the main crossing, where uh, the most number of or the largest number of Ukrainians uh, across the border into uh, Poland. That's called Medica, and just behind me there is a, uh, a commandeered uh, Tesco's. It used to be uh, Tesco, just like the, the the kind of store that we visit every day in the UK. Inside, it's uh, being changed though into a, a Ukrainian refugee registration centre. So a little bit like the one we were showing you in uh, Helm, which is just north 
of the border. I'll just move out of the way here because there's a car that wants to get past. Really busy at the moment, actually. Uh, we think that uh, uh, another sort of fleet of buses has just brought uh, thousands uh, or hundreds more Ukrainians here, and there, are, and there are hundreds more that have spent the night here uh, that are making their way to onward journeys. Uh, over in the corner, there's uh, lots of uh, coaches heading to various countries across Europe, Germany, uh, Lithuania, uh, also all, uh, to a number of cities across Poland. And really, it's a similar, it's a similar uh, scene to the registration centre we showed you earlier. If I just point, point out here in the direction of those tents over there, they're kind of giving out uh, tea and coffee and food, giving out uh, aid, uh, medical supplies, you know, toiletries for uh, babies, particularly nappies over there. And then over here, there are food tents in this direction where people are getting some dinner at the moment, while other people here make their way onto buses. So it's really busy all the time. We can't film inside, but at the moment, we do know that there are beds inside where people can stay for the night maybe one night, perhaps two at a stretch if they need to, before they make their onward journey to other parts of, uh, of Europe. Here there's a, a Spanish humanitarian agency who are handing out uh, hot paella, I think it is, hot paella to people uh, to take away, not just Ukrainians as well, but the other volunteers that have gathered here from across Europe. So there's lots happening here at the moment. Um, we've, we have been talking to, to people here about whether, they're, whether they want to come to the UK and apply under this new scheme. I'll be honest, a lot of people haven't heard about it. A lot of people have heard that there are difficulties in applying to, uh, to, to come to the UK. So we kind of told them about the scheme. And they thought, yeah, OK, maybe we'll come. But the UK is really far to go. We want to kind of stick to Poland, add a push, go to Germany, France, Latvia. Uh, we don't really want to come all the way to the UK simply because of the geographical distance, but they will consider it. So I think it's going to take a few days for the Ukrainian uh, sort of community around around the border uh, with Ukraine and also for word to spread inside Ukraine that the UK is potentially another destination to come. Paul Hawkins, thanks for your insight there. Now, should we have a little look at this new scheme that's just launched? Uh, this is the Home for Ukrainians uh, scheme. A few key points on this. Ukrainians do not need ties to the UK. There's no limit to the number of refugees. Refugees can live, work and use public services in the UK for up to three years. And there'll be a £350 tax repayment for hosts per month. Uh, but anyone interested in this scheme, and I've got to say, this seems quite random to me on the face of it anyway, they'll need to name the refugee that they're going to sponsor. This drew criticism from Labour MP Lisa Nandy. Because we want the scheme to be up and running as soon as possible, Homes for Ukraine will initially facilitate sponsorship between people with known connections. But we will rapidly expand the scheme in a phased way with charities, churches and community groups to ensure that many more prospective sponsors can be matched with Ukrainians who need help. Surely there's a role for the Secretary of State in matching Ukrainian families to their sponsors, not just a DIY asylum scheme where all he does is take the credit. A DIY asylum scheme. Well, Andre Walker, you've actually just got back. You said yesterday, did you yeah, say? Yeah, yesterday. You just got back uh, yesterday. You was at the Polish border. Yes, yeah, so I've been was to Poland and I've been to Ukraine. We were, we were moving supplies over. So, effectively, what's been happening is vast, vast numbers of vans have come to Poland because it's, it's incredibly safe, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, these 40-tonne Arctic trucks, we were breaking them up into what I've described as a flotilla of smaller vehicles because, obviously, it's going 
going to be very hard Who's to play. Who's we, by the way? Um, frankly, and this is something that Lisa Nandy was wrong on, it's incredibly crowdsourced, all of this. So it's kind of vans just turning up from all sorts of places, different groups, whether it be Polish associations in the UK, whether it be individual companies. There's just a huge community of people, and it's really growing, grown organically. So, effectively, people are just all on WhatsApp and Signal and Telegram, just kind of putting all these things together. But I think... There's a warning that I would put out about uh, all of this talk about bringing Ukrainians to Britain. You have to remember that it is a criminal offence for an 18 to 60-year-old man to leave Ukraine. They've all been conscripted to the Ukrainian army. Therefore, you have women and children, and they are not very keen to stray a long way from their husbands. And so they don't want to come to Britain. If you look at it, there's been 13,500 applications to Britain. There's been 5,500 applications to the Republic of Ireland, which is open to anyone. They'll accept any Ukrainian. The reality is we need to be much, much better at supporting people in neighbouring countries. Moldova is the poorest country in Europe. They've had 400,000 people coming. Of course, the advantage is Ukrainian and Russian are incredibly similar, so you can assimilate into Moldova relatively quickly. But these aren't... These aren't the Eritreans that we've seen coming to the UK who are economic migrants pretending to be refugees. These are genuine refugees who want to get back and want to be close to their husbands. And so I think that this scheme will be incredibly unpopular. Yeah, by the way, I was just showing, whilst you were talking, I was just showing some uh, clips for those of you watching and wondering, what is this you're seeing? It was Andre in action uh, looking... It wasn't Andre in action. There you it go. It was Andre lugging boxes. Come on. Well, that is direct action. What can I say? Uh, Jeevan, your thoughts? Um, well, it's a good scheme. It's a fine scheme. But 4,000 visas so far from the UK, we're clearly not pulling our weight. Poland has taken over a million refugees so far. And look, as your reporter said, why do people come to England from Ukraine? It's not because we're an easy or soft touch. We've seen after the Windrush scandal, we definitely aren't. What it is is people come here because they have a connection. It is far too difficult for those in Ukraine to come to this country and claim asylum or indeed help us out. We should also remember that since COVID started, we've had 200,000 people leave the workforce due to sickness, we think due to long COVID. So actually quite a prime time to take in those from another nation who can work here. And the final bit I want to pick up is on Eritrea in particular. We should remember Eritrea is a totalitarian state run by a military dictatorship. What you've just done. Where every young man, where every young man has to be conscripted into the army. They do have a reasonable ground to refugees and to leave that nation. The first thing you did then is exactly the problem with this whole debate. 200,000 people have left the workforce. You do not want to support refugees. You want economic migrants. These people are not economic migrants. Their husbands are being killed but because they've been conscripted into an army having no military training. These people do not want to move to Birmingham. They want to sit on the border and go back as soon as possible. And, and does that not prove the whole problem that we have with this immigration debate? The minute we talk about refugees, you're talking about people in the workplace. You just love economic migration and you're dishonest. So the first thing I actually said was that we only had 4,000 visas and those who come to this country have a connection. The second thing I said was that actually we also have a need in this country for more people. We should be welcoming those as well. And then the third thing I said was that people fleeing from Eritrea are also those fleeing from a totalitarian dictatorship. We absolutely have so a moral think, so obligation, a moral obligation to take in more Ukrainians who come to this country. We are not doing enough. And also there is an they economic benefit applied. on the side. They haven't applied. 
no other complaints. Well, I, I'm Sorry. interested in Lee's uh, thoughts as well. I mean, they haven't applied. It's partly because the, the Home Office scheme is extremely tortuous and they've made it more difficult to apply than any, any other <coughs> European um, asylum scheme. The, the, the system as designed is obviously inadequate to make a dent on the 2.8 million people that have fled the Ukraine. I mean, I think, you know, these positions can be reconciled to some extent because Andre is right that refugees tend to, to want to be in countries that are similar to their own and near to their own country because they do aspire to go back. And so alongside uh, helping people in situ in those countries, our foreign policy should be directed at trying to end this war as quickly as possible. Absolutely. This war, like all wars everywhere, is a humanitarian catastrophe. 2.8 million people fleeing the country, 1.7 million alone in, in Poland alone. I was speaking to somebody with relatives in, in Poland. They are housing people in their spare rooms. They are turning over their buy-to-lets indefinitely to refugees. The city of Krakow is estimating they need to build 30 schools just to accommodate the children that are, are flooding into the city. These are relatively poor countries that are being overwhelmed by these refugee flows. And I, I think if the government really wanted to help people, instead of designing this very convoluted scheme that is only likely to be able to house perhaps a few hundred, a few thousand people, you know, a similar scheme for Syria only ended up housing 700 people, it would send money to those countries. That's what refugees need But we are sending money to those countries, though, aren't we? Not we are not, doing that. By no means enough. Hundreds of but millions, if, isn't it? Not from the UK. But if, but, if, but, but if this contention that we've heard from the political left, that the reason there's only been 13,000 applications to the United Kingdom, if that were true, uh, because the Home Office are being so difficult, if that were true, then why is it that the Irish Republic that has no checks whatsoever has only had 5,500? What you would have expected was, well, the United Kingdom are being very difficult, that's why they've only got 13,500, and the Irish Republic have got 50,000, but they haven't. The reality is people want to go to Moldova, people want to go to uh, Hungary, people want to go to Romania, and people want to go to Poland. My own view, by the way, on Poland is I think the infrastructure is holding up remarkably well. Clearly more work needs to be done, but I genuinely think it's a mistake to spend the money here when we should be building the infrastructure in Poland. And I do think, Andre, the point that you raise about uh, the makeup of the refugees, i.e. the men have to stay there, so the women and the children, I think the point that you make about actually, if any of us imagine, you know, if you're leaving your, I don't know, your, your husband, let's simplify this, your husband, <clears throat> you are going to want to be as close as possible to where he is and where your home is. And I do kind of find this whole numerical uh, conversation a little bit crass. So, even like you're saying, well, you know, more or, or higher numbers or whatever, I just find it a bit crass that we're reducing people to... I almost, I'm going to be honest, I find it a little bit virtue signalling. When I sit and I listen to, oh, well, the UK's got, I don't know, 100 and they've got 200 and she's got 250, I just find it a bit virtue signalling. Surely what we should be doing is providing an opportunity and a process so that if, and the clue in the word for me here is if, if they choose to come here, then they are indeed welcomed and not having unnecessary obstacles put in their way. But I find this kind of num number and comparison of numbers a little bit crass and virtue signal-esque. So I think the issue here is that actually those who do want to come here have had huge issues in coming here so far. I think actually it's a really fair point. Of course they're going to want to be closer to their nations. We saw that in Syria as well. Most 
most of the refugees who left that nation ended up settling in Turkey, in Lebanon. It took a huge amount of people, bearing in mind also being a much poorer nation than we are inside the United Kingdom. I think it's entirely right that those who want to be settling around Ukraine should absolutely do so. My worry and my concern is those who do want to come here have found a difficult and torturous application yeah, process. But... And the other question here is this. We appreciate and we understand the fact that people who are fleeing Ukraine have a passport. Why is there a torturous application process? We also accept they don't, most of them won't want to come to the United States. It's not. It oh, is. It's, it's, simply, it's simply not true to say, and it's ludicrous to say, that everybody fleeing Ukraine has a passport. There's no evidence to suggest that whatsoever. That's part of the problem they've got at the border. But, but look, the other point to make is, look, the Chechen irregulars that are being sent in are absolute animals. These are people who were not allowed in the Chechen military on the grounds of vetting, right? The reality is the women and children are leaving because they're concerned about sex crime, principally against them, right? These people do not speak, potentially do not speak English. They don't want, when they've got little kids and they're women in their 20s and 30s, they do not want to be going halfway around the world. They want to go to countries where they can speak a similar language, where they know people, where they've got cousins and relatives. Uh, it is, and, and the idea that, and, and frankly, I just feel, Michelle, that you were right. You know, part of this is, let's drag as many of these people over to the United Kingdom to make ourselves feel better, even though they don't want to be here, and they're terrified about being here because they don't understand the country. Well, Who's trying to drag them here? You. I'm definitely not. I don't think I made that. Well, you talked about 200,000 people to fill up the workforce. That sounds like dragging to me. No, it sounds like there's an opportunity there. It's not an opportunity. How can you say it's an opportunity when you're talking about women and children refugees? This is just crass, uh, crass um, virtue signalling. Well, there you go. You've heard uh, different opinions on this panel, but I want to hear yours at home as well. Get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk, or tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Uh, let's talk China, shall we? Because uh, according to US media outlets citing Washington officials, they reckon that Russia has in recent days been asking China for military and economic support have to say, Russia has denied asking Beijing for military help. The Chinese foreign ministry accused the US of spreading disinformation. The United States said China will face consequences if it helps Russia evade any sanctions. So what's, what's actually, first of all, I mean, I even feel like saying, what is even going on? I think actually anyone that knows with all honesty what's going on at the moment, then you are, well, I don't know what you are, because every single day we are bombarded with uh, information from all different camps. Um, some people say one thing, someone says a complete opposite thing. You believe one thing and then that turns out to be disinformation. So have Russia uh, asked China for military and economic support? Um, Lee Jones, this is your kind of field, isn't it? The whole kind of international relations, China uh, particularly. But there is a real question mark here about the role of China, what role they should be playing, what role they might be playing, what the consequences of either might be. Mm. China's in a very invidious position here. Um, on the one hand, it's not very happy about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It would have preferred it not to have happened. Um, and that is partly because uh, China prefers, generally, generally prefers stability uh, and security for its own economic development. It doesn't want unnecessarily, uh, unnecessary unrest. It doesn't want to come under pressure from Western governments over its relationship with other countries such as Russia. And it also finds the principle of sovereignty and territorial integrity a very useful set of principles for its own purposes. For example, it will cite those principles and try to fend off British pressure over 
its treatment of Hong Kong, for example. So on the one hand, you've got those considerations. On the other, uh, China has a, a strong, relatively strong alignment, not an alliance, but an alignment with Russia because they share a similar outlook on world order. They're not happy with US domination. They prefer a multipolar world order. Uh, and they uh, are cooperating in various ways in, in Central Asia. And the Chinese see that um, this crisis has partly been uh, provoked by NATO expansion in Eastern Europe, infringing on Russian security interests. And so what they try to do is to come out with quite ambiguous positions that try to kind of smudge over all these different contradictory things. So they'll talk about respect for territorial integrity and sovereignty in Ukraine, and then also talk about Russian security interests at the same time. So they're trying to kind of walk a very fine line, whereas what the Americans are doing is trying to leverage everybody they can into opposing Russia. So this statement that the Russians are asking for help comes as the American national security advisor is flying to Beijing to talk with the most senior foreign policy official in the Chinese regime. So it's an attempt to put pressure on China to make it break from Russia. It's a part of a kind of information campaign that the Americans are waging against the Russian government. Yeah, and Putin and President Xi signed a statement in Beijing last month, apparently, saying that they had a partnership which had a quote, I direct quote, no limits to their partnership. Jivan, uh, your thoughts? I suspect that might be something President Xi is not enjoying at the moment. Do you want to be in a low limits partnership with someone who is at best a reckless gamber and at worst completely deluded? I think he's stuck inside this relationship. It's a certainly a worrying place to be. But look, also before this moment, we had this, you know, we've talked about the democratic nation of the world. We speak about it a lot. There was also kind of an emerging autocratic axis as well. We'd seen Russia support Syria and seen Bashar al-Assad there. We've seen also the Chinese and the Russians support the Venezuelans. There is, if you like, now a new kind of world order in which there are democracies on one hand and also autocracies on the other. It's a more of a worrying world that we live in. Hopefully, you would say that China actually would be so disturbed by these actions, they wouldn't end up supplying military action or other military help to Russia. And the big question on the horizon, of course, being Taiwan, given the fact that actually Russia's invasion in Ukraine has not gone to plan, certainly second thoughts for China to think about what would happen if they did try to invade Taiwan in the future. Andre? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, President Xi and uh, President Putin quoting 90s pop rap band Too Unlimited with no limits is, is a good thing, so I'm, I'm pleased with that. Look, the reality is that Russia is being beaten in Ukraine. And, and part of the reason they're being beaten is because this ridiculous bubble of fake news... I mean, we complain about fake news in Britain, but the entire Russian nation, I believe, including Vladimir Putin, believed that everybody in Ukraine would welcome the Russian military with open arms. And when that didn't happen, it's turned into a total catastrophe. I, I don't think he's asking for China's help. I think he's begging like a wounded animal for any help he can get. That's Putin. I mean... The problem with that is that, you know, wounded animals have a tendency to lash out. And if you look at what happened in Grozny, if you look in Chechnya, if you look at what happened in Syria, when Putin didn't do very well, he began just levelling the country. And my, my concern is that even though Ukraine is going to beat Russia, um, what, at what cost will that be in terms of the humanitarian side? But in terms of the Chinese, look... Not even President Xi, who is one of the worst people. I mean, he banned Winnie the Pooh in his own country because people made jokes they looked similar to each other. I mean, that how narcissistic and pathetic is that? 
Not even he is willing to defend Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is out of his mind. He's destroying the Russian country. He's losing a war bluntly against a bunch of farmers with tractors. It's an embarrassment. Lee, your response to that? <laughs> well, where to begin? Um, Just say it's true. Well, I'm a f well it's, it's a view and, um, you know, GB views and all that. Uh, I think it's a bit too soon to say that the, the Russians are losing. Uh, because it partly depends on what the Russian objectives are in Ukraine. So, you know, there are some people that think the Russians are out to conquer Ukraine, and if obviously if that is the objective, then that's not going to be achieved. Um, but there is another view that says the Russians would settle for a more limited outcome, which is they would inflict very heavy damage on the Ukrainian war machine, which is not a bunch of uh, you know, farmers with tractors. Uh, the Americans have been pumping... Uh, weaponry and training into Ukraine for many years, as has the UK. So it, let's not uh, <laughs> let's let's stay real. Uh, and the uh, on that view, they would settle for degrading the Ukrainian military capability, inflicting very uh, heavy damage on Ukrainian cities, in order to uh, either compel Ukraine to uh, opt for neutrality and even recognise the separatist republics in the east. And Russia will be able to retreat to those eastern republics and, and hold them against uh, Ukrainian counterattacks. So, you know, from that perspective, if you think that Russia has more minimal goals, then it hasn't, it hasn't lost yet. And it's certainly, I think, not the case that the Ukrainians can simply beat the Russian invasion force. I mean, certainly there's lots of problems with the Russian invasion. It has been very badly planned. The Russian Air Force has not deployed. There's uh, corruption clearly in procurement because the equipment is falling apart and rusty all kinds of problems. It has definitely not gone the way that President Putin would have, would have expected. But still, Russia has overwhelming military superiority in Ukraine and will and is being able to inflict serious damage on Ukraine. So to say that the Russians are either already lost or they're going to lose or they're going to be defeated by Ukraine, I think is, is, is simply not accurate. I, 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 just, I just wonder about that. And, and, and I don't disagree with what you've said. I don't disagree. But, but I think the point I was trying to get across was I think there's a possibility that both Ukraine and Russia will lose, but I just don't think there's an option where Russia wins. Well, as I say, that really depends on what you think Russia's objectives are. So if you think Russia's objective is to conquer Ukraine and install the public government... Well, that's what they've forever. said, haven't they? They've said they want Zelensky's government out. Well... They have said that, and at the same time, they've also said we recognise the Zelensky government as the legitimate government of Ukraine, and they've, they're negotiating constantly with that government. So, uh, and equally, the Ukrainian government has said we will accept neutrality, and then they've said, no, we're still going to pursue yeah, but, but, NATO, but, but ultimately, NATO membership. But, but so my, but my the point, point is, in the sorry. context of war and conflict, um, both sides have got some kind of interest in saying our goal is, you know, maximal goal, and our goal is a minimal goal, because their objectives probably lay somewhere in between those things. And they're gearing up their domestic population for negotiations, to fight conflict. So it's actually quite difficult to read through the fog of war into what the actual objectives are. So we have to try to maintain as open a mind as, as possible about what's really going on in a situation of armed conflict. And Jeevan, as well, just to bring this to the economic side of things, um, you know, the US are, are saying to China, if you try and help bypass the sanctions that we're putting on you, there'll be consequences for that. And actually, 
we were just talking about earlier on, actually, the size of the Russian economy. And I think we all talk Russia, and, and you might all think, you know, because of the landmass, because of the size of the population, that Russia is this huge economy. And actually, it's not so, is it? Um, you know, countries like Italy, uh, France, they're bigger than this, way bigger than, than Russia. And I think it's quite surprising when you actually look into the figures of the size of the economy compared to the image, the illusion that many people might have about the size of Russia. It certainly is surprising. It was surprising to me when I first saw those figures as well. We should also remember as well that why is it we think Russia has been so kind of much more prosperous than it is? It's because you've had Putin, who is now a dictator, kind of reallocating the resources to what he wanted, which was a military and was what we thought was the third most powerful military in the world. And of course, a huge concentration of wealth into the oligarchs. So yeah, it's certainly true Russia is nowhere near as prosperous as we would think. Now, the, the aim of our sanctions has always been to kind of starve Putin's war machine. It's not about trying to foment a revolution inside Russia. That is unlikely. But the next stage is also this, and the problem we have is this. We think at the moment Europe is spending, or sending rather, a billion dollars to Russia every single day in terms of for gas and oil. It's clear we need to move away from that. I'm not saying it's an easy thing. It's not something that can be done overnight. I do have kind of respect for the kind of difficulties our European partners face, but we definitely need to change that if we do want to have a real economic bite to stop Putin from waging this war any longer. Yeah, the awful part of it is when you turn and you think about oil and people will say stuff like, oh, so-and-so is really dependent on oil. Well, the next choice is places like Saudi Arabia. I mean, look at the state of the government over there. Anyway, Lee, just before we go, if I can, very briefly, Zelensky has yet again called for a no-fly zone. You will have all seen that. Uh, very briefly, do you think there should be a no-fly zone in place of Ukraine? A no-fly zone over Ukraine means NATO going to war with Russia. Nobody should be under any illusions as to what a no-fly zone means. It sounds as if it, it doesn't involve direct military confrontation. A no-fly zone means you deploy your airplanes to a territory and you shoot down any aircraft that try to fly over that territory. It's not a voluntary uh, association. It is a military deployment. You would have, therefore, NATO jets flying over Ukraine and attacking any Russian aircraft that get anywhere near. On top of that, Russia has a highly sophisticated layered air defense system that would shoot down many NATO aircraft before they even got anywhere near the Russian columns that are currently invading Ukraine. So the people calling for a no-fly zone in, uh, in Ukraine, I think they're, they're used to NATO powers invading and uh, conquering or bombing very weak military powers. You know, it's a different proposition to militarily confront a nuclear-armed power like Russia than it is to have a no-fly zone but, over Iraq, but, for example. But, 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 but allow me to say this, just on the principle of this. The idea that a sovereign country should invite a military force in to support them is obviously sensible. You know, the reason why these Russian forces are in Ukraine is because they've invaded the place. Now, I'm not necessarily arguing for a no-fly zone, but ultimately, I don't think you can hold NATO responsible for being invited in by the Ukrainian government. It's, it's Russia that are there um, without, without permission. And I think that's important to bear in mind because I just think Vladimir Putin is a schoolyard bully and the longer we let him away with it, the more he's going to do.
So you're not in favour of a no-fly zone? I'm not particularly in favour of a no-fly zone, but we've got to do something to stop him. Jeevan, would you be in favour of a no-fly zone briefly? Uh, no, for the same reason stated before, it would mean a war with Russia. It would not be a pretty war. We haven't had any war between great powers since World War II. World War I, of course, incredibly destructive. Those are the kind of wars that kill millions. Yeah, and I mean, I get it, by the way. I think anyone with a heart watching these awful scenes uh, in Ukraine, you know, we're seeing... So many victims, aren't we? Your heart, you know, you watch this and you, in your heart you want it all to stop. So I get it, you know, you're, you're watching. I understand why he's calling for it. I'd be calling for them to try and protect my skies if, you know, they were bombing my country and I was in charge. But the consequences of this, and I'm really fascinated if you are somebody who thinks that there should be a no-fly zone. Do you recognise some of the uh, consequences? And do you mind about those consequences? Is that, in your mind, a price worth paying? Get in touch with me, gpviews at gpnews.uk. I know I'm promising to to read out some of your emails, and I most certainly will. Uh, lots of you guys uh, getting in touch. Leslie says, I'm really enjoying your show tonight. Great topics and content. I'm pleased that you're enjoying it, Leslie. Um, lots of conversations about whether or not we should have a no-fly zone. I have to say, most people uh, currently say no. If you are somebody uh, who says yes, do get in touch and let me know. A lot of people agreeing with what, what I was saying earlier on, which is your head says, um, sorry, your heart says, yes, absolutely, please try and protect as many people as possible. Your heart then kicks in and looks at the consequences, such as we've just been discussing. Um, it's not a nice situation. It's a horrible situation and one that I, you know, I would hope and pray ends uh, as soon as possible. Chris on the refugee situation says, Michelle, why do us British people feel it necessary to even moan all the time about what the government is doing and then try and assign our beliefs onto people? Just because we're saying the Ukrainians should come here, maybe some Ukrainians don't want to come because they prefer to stay close to their country. How arrogant are we, he asks. Um, again, I was saying earlier, Andre, lots of respect for you uh, for going over to the border. But let's talk about something uh, happening here then, shall we? The Mayor of London. Sadiq Khan says that primary school children should be given lessons on misogyny and sexism. Now, this is in a bit, of course, to try and curb violence against women. Uh, he launched his campaign at Crystal Palace Football Club, uh, the stadium there, with the aim of implementing change when it comes to sexist attitudes and inappropriate behaviour towards women. What do you think to this? Uh, is this the kind of topics we should be uh, teaching in primary schools, Jeevan Sander? Yeah, why not, right? You know, after last year, I think especially around the tragic murder of Sarah Everard, we started to have discussions, especially as men, and obviously there are tonight three men on this panel as well as you, Michelle, about the kind of life that women actually lead. One in five women will be sexually assaulted in their lives. Over 70% are sexually harassed. That's not a world that we as men live in. I became increasingly aware of the fact that we inhabit a completely different world where we don't have to feel scared or don't have to worry about someone saying something to us or making us feel awful. Absolutely, why not teach us earlier? Why not try and create a society in which we respect one another as human beings? I absolutely think it's a great idea to do and something to go forward with. What's the matter with you, Andre? Oh, making very know, suspicious no, no, sounds no, 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 to no, my do, right. Do you, know, do you know what really, really offends me more than anything else? What? For the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, to stand up in Crystal Palace, South London, I'm not a football fan, and to say the number one thing that young people need is a lecture about misogyny. The number one thing that people in South London need, young people in South London, is for him to deal with the knife crime epidemic, which is spectacularly failed to deal with as Mayor of London. This guy's just cheap. All he's interested in is getting a few headlines. The reality 
reality is Sadiq Khan has failed uh, by any metric that you look at, but particularly on the issue of young people rubbing each other out in unprecedented numbers in South London. This man should be apologising for his failure rather than going out and lecturing us about how to bring up children. Andre, get off that fence because I don't think it's comfortable <laughs> on that. Lee, your thoughts? Um, I mean, I do agree with, about Sadiq Khan in general. I think he, he has been very ineffective as mayor of London in dealing with the knife crime, the knife crime problem. As somebody that lived in, in in Croydon for many years and saw, you know, weekly headlines of of young black men being stabbed to death, uh, there is a there is an epi epidemic out there. But that's a risk facing particularly young men, whereas young women face a different kind of risk of violence, and that is overwhelmingly domestic violence, violence from people that they know and inside the homes. I mean, the figures really are staggering. Uh, in in 2020-21 alone, 40,000 women were sexually assaulted or raped. 1.6 million women suffered domestic abuse. 177 were killed, and that's in England and Wales alone. So it, it's possible that there are two problems at the same time, I don't possibly think... more. So I would have concerns about the way that this would be implemented in schools. I don't think that's right. I don't, don't think but... it's fair, but let me explain why, because... Teaching about misogyny in schools is about saying every person, every young man, is somebody who's an abuser, who's a sexual harasser, who's a rapist. This message that all men are evil. The reality is, you are talking about a level of criminality when you're talking about sexual assault, when you're talking about domestic violence, when you're talking about rape. Let's deal with the criminality rather than telling everybody that they're bad people. Sadiq Khan refuses, refuses to deal with the problems of criminality in London. He blames the Home Office, he blames toxic male culture, he blames all sorts of things other than himself. He is the Police and Crime Commissioner for London and he's an absolute disaster. And that's the problem. It's about dealing with the criminality, which he will not do. What he wants to do is tell me, my nephews, uh, that they're all potential rapists, potential sexual harassers, potential evil people, and he's wrong. This is the this is the concern that I would have, is that if it was taught in that way in schools, that the problem is that you know all men could be like this or all men are like that, in the same way that anti-racism can be taught in schools sometimes. The idea that everybody, for example, should have should feel white guilt and so on, it produces that kind of backlash from many students and their parents. But there is a lot of evidence to suggest that retrograde attitudes about women and about gender and gender relations are strongly associated with the kinds of criminal offences that we're talking about. The more you, you cleave to traditional notions... How that... about we start arresting and convicting these people rather than going around how moaning... About, how about Virtue signalling. It's just virtue signalling. The reality, no, it's not. The reality, the reality is the police in London are a disaster. Dick of the Yard and Sadiq Khan have been appalling. Right? Good riddance to her. Hopefully we'll get rid of Sadiq soon. And, and frankly, let's go out to Crystal Palace and show off how virtuous we are. It's not going to resolve the problem. Nothing's going to resolve the problem until Sadiq Khan loses that election, there which is... is never going to happen because he's good at apologising for himself and blaming everyone else. There is law enforcement and then there is the prevention of crime. Many of your viewers, many of your older viewers in particular, will be able to see in their lifetime how much ideas about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, relations between men and women, that those norms have changed dramatically. And that has gone alongside a secular decline in violence against women, and particularly in terms of domestic violence. It would have been considered socially acceptable 
50 or 60 years ago for a man to beat his wife. Today, it is completely unacceptable. That is due to changing norms in the way that we think about men and women, the relations between them. Education does have a role to play in that. I think you are right, you know, because there's just a, a particular drink, which I shan't name on national television, because I'll probably get sued. But um, there's a particular drink, a beverage, an alcoholic beverage that I think of. And immediately, when you was just talking then about it was acceptable to beat your wife years ago, I think of a particular drink that people called wife beater. That's actually what they call this particular alcoholic brand. Many of you will know what I mean. I won't name it, just because I don't want to get sued. But anyway, Jeevan, your thoughts? Yeah, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? You can both deal with preventing future crime as well as dealing with crime today. We should also be clear about something. It is certainly true violent crime is rising. It's also rising across this country. It has doubled in the last 10 years. And why is that? Well, actually, in part because we have 20,000 fewer police officers. We do need more police officers. But it's also not within Sadiq Khan's power in London to hire that many more police officers. That does come from central government. If it was well, only well, Sadiq Khan... True. If it was only from Sadiq Khan... True. If it was only from Sadiq Khan... Who's it's responsible not... for violent crime in London? We would see violent crime rising in London, but not elsewhere. What, what you... Now, while Just there let him is. Just finish one sec, Andrea. Go on, Stephen. While there is a funding, or rather a crime problem in London, it is also not true to say that, well, this is solely due to Sadiq Khan. Sadiq Khan has had to deal with, like, every single mayor and council leader across this country cuts their police forces. They are stuck in that system. I think we all agree on this panel we want to see more police in London. We'd want to see a greater prevention of crime. It is certainly not, however, solely at Sadiq Khan's doorstep. Uh, what you've just heard is simply untrue. Uh, the, GL, the GLA, the Greater London Authority, is allowed to top up the police budget out of general taxation. I agree that Theresa May was an awful Home Secretary, but the good news is she was even worse as Prime Minister. Um, but, but, but the reality is it is not true to say that Sadiq Khan cannot hire more police. That's simply dishonest. I suppose the, the key word there is top up. And it's also to do with the fact that London you doesn't have that that. London doesn't have revenue-raising powers like other major cities across the world. It's one of the problems that the London mayor has had traditionally. Sorry, how, how, is, how is the GLC across. precept not money-raising power? Right, so what they don't have is an agreement to institute new taxes and other rising taxes like you do in cities across the world. You can it's put, a problem in mayors across no, this country. But there's, country. No, there's no cap on the GL, GLA precept. Uh, so, uh, what's got, Ken Livingstone trebled it. So, I mean, but I, I can't understand how you can say we can't afford more police when you've got the ability to, to put up the GLA precept by an unlimited amount and pay for police. Well, I think this conversation about policing shall rumble on. Uh, but for now, I'm going to pause it there. Lots of you just want to read briefly some of your emails. Jane says, talking about misogyny, Michelle, you have to get to the root of the problem, which is porn. She says that is what is corrupting the minds of men. Anne says, uh, how can schools teach, teach misogyny, Michelle, when Labour can't define what a woman is. Um, Linda says, for pity's sake, please, let children be children. So many of them now have mental health issues. Is there any wonder, she says, when we're piling all of this pressure onto them? Derek says, of course we should have a no-fly zone, Michelle. It would bring Putin to the negotiating table. Interesting view there. Uh, Evan says, we need to face Putin down right now or where do we go next? Uh, where we go next, I suspect we'll be talking about that for a long time to come. But for now... That is all. Thank you very much to my panel and, of course, thank you to you at home for your company. Have a good evening and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes & Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>